as you grow, you're going to need to add on more and more services. I think if you look at most startups today, they tend to have someone that's doing their payroll. You have maybe Plio for employee cards and so on. We use Telerood to run some of our backs payments and our payroll runs. And most of these services are costing you like 50 quid a month, 30, 50 quid a month plus per service, and you need loads of them. You can bail that to any kind of large commercial institution. Um, my favorite example of this is something like Royal Bank of Canada. If you're if you're a big enough business that you're banking with Royal Bank of Canada in their commercial banking arm, they will look after everything for you. They will do your payroll. They will have debt and credit facilities available for you as you need them. They will run your employee cards program, and they will do everything all under one roof. And and you will have a dedicated relationship manager on the other side. Hello and welcome to the Finterview. I'm Daniel Cronin, co-founder and COO of Integrated Finance. I'll be your host today for our Founders series, where each episode we have an awesome founder share their entrepreneurial journey to date. In this episode, we have Ed Bramwell, founder of Ketzel, a startup neobank building a business finance super app. Its vision is to become the best first partner for startups from inception all the way to IPO. Uh, welcome, Ed. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. I want to dig into a little bit about uh, your business, but first of all, I want to know why you'd be stupid enough to start a business. What's the inspiration behind Ketzel? It, really good question. So separate it into two parts. First is why start a business and then and then why start this business in particular, why start Ketzel? So why start a business? I think I've always been pretty entrepreneurial. Um, always been sort of running schemes and, and so on to try and make a little bit of pocket money on the side ever since school. And then decided to, when I finished my degree, go into the most corporate of corporate places and go into consulting. Spent a lot of time in consulting, did a bit of work in startups and then did some work in corporates and had the same kind of theme throughout, which is that I didn't really like the lack of autonomy. I didn't really like working for someone else. Always have wanted to run my own thing and be entrepreneurial and and so took the jump about where are we now 18 months ago to, to actually quit and quit and start my own thing why Ketzel in particular this was actually a problem that we'd experienced I won't go into sort of too much of the details but effectively we tried to start something else it went up a bit it went flat during the process of starting that product we had a load of problems on the banking side as a startup getting access to accounts we got thrown off stripe for, for reasons I still don't understand. So for me, it was it was super clear that this was a real problem. And then from testing it with a load of founder friends and other entrepreneurs, it was it was even more obvious that there was a problem with the startup banking space and, and there was a real opportunity to, to build something exciting. Awesome. Now, I'd love to dig into a little bit more about what those challenges were you faced. Um, it would be great to hear. What did you expect? Was it a total surprise when you started having these pains and you were thinking, wow, why, what on earth is the problem here? Or did you have some, some semblance of an idea that maybe there was friction? You just, you just didn't know how much. Yeah. I guess my expectation was that if you're going to open an account with Starling or Revolut or, or whoever it might be, that it'll be as easy as it would be to open it as a consumer. Part of that, I think was probably ignorance on the levels of KYC required for businesses versus consumers, which is driving this. But really imagined a kind of consumer grade experience and that was just not the case so it was fill in a very very long form felt much longer than it was when it was a sort of retail consumer form and then get thrown into this queue of cool thanks we'll get back to you 
you'd be waiting two, three days before you got a response. And then sometimes the response was, oh, you're outside our risk appetite, or we don't want to serve you, or we need more information rather than just like, hello, here's your account. And I understand why that is, especially now having built something close to that. I really understand the, exactly what's going on behind the curtain there in terms of they're checking your business details, they're checking your shareholder details and so on to make sure they really understand you as a business before bringing you on. But I think you could definitely make the process cleaner, especially if you're serving tech startups only. Now, both Revolut and Starling are kind of, and Tide as well, they're targeting the 5 million SME market in the UK. So there are a lot of tradesmen and women, a lot of like small enterprises that have completely different needs to, to tech startups. And so you need to build a flow that suits them and, and maybe there's slightly less urgency there. But for me, it was, we've got a term sheet. We need a bank account so that we can receive that money and start building our business. And I think if any of them had even asked that question, like, do you have a term sheet? They would get all the information they need in order to put us through KYC in a pretty clean way, just by asking. And because obviously they're not like, they didn't know me, a business with no trading history from a carpenter or a dry cleaner because they've not met at what is now Vestex Limited before. And so, so the process is completely different. I got to admit, I've never met anyone who has gone through this process and went, oh yeah, I knew it would be like that from the first time. What do you think it is that um, from the smartest of the smart to the dumbest of the dumb and everything in between, what is it that makes people think this isn't a problem until they've faced it? Uh, because it's, it's pretty damn obvious why banks are fairly restrictive and selective on who they want to bank. But I, when I um, got into deliverable uh, foreign exchange, when I was with a whippersnapper, I was shocked that I couldn't onboard all of these customers that I thought um, were, were totally great. Uh, and my compliance team had to take me down and give me a bit of a dressing down on why they might not be relevant for services. Why is it a surprise to everyone? What, what do you think is missing as part of the, the entrepreneurial education to participate in financial services? Yeah, I, I think it's something you take for granted, right? Because you interact with it on a daily basis as a consumer, everyone's got a bank account, most people have a credit card, it's pretty easy to open a PayPal account. So you don't face the same kind of friction. And I guess for me personally, it was, you don't appreciate the ability to commit financial crime is, is significantly easier and able to do it on an order of magnitude several times greater if you're running it through a business account than if you're running it through a kind of consumer account. If I suddenly start sending hundreds of thousand pounds to today from high risk accounts, it's pretty easy for Barclays, the bank for me to turn around and say, hold on, we know you don't earn that much. So where's this money coming from? Whereas if you're a business and you're reporting hundreds of thousands of revenue, your business could just be doing pretty well. And so for, for a bank or a financial institution, it's about getting to the point where they understand exactly what your business is doing and then making sure that the money that coming in and going out is, is the same. And I don't think you appreciate that as a kind of retail consumer who assumes that most people are doing good and that people aren't there to abuse the financial system when actually the, the counter is true is that People are always trying to pick holes in people's compliance frameworks and other security systems to make it easier to commit crime. And I think, unfortunately for us, we've picked the higher risk end of the spectrum, but it's definitely one of the reasons why the experience is so poor 
think my perspective is that it just doesn't need to be for a lot of startups because the amount of effort required on behalf of the onboarding entity to get a good understanding of the startup on the other end is, is super low. It doesn't take much to time to read through the website, understand what this business should be doing, and then, and then be very specific around the kind of things that you would expect. If you're starting a software company, I'm pretty certain that 80 to 90% of your revenue should be coming through Stripe. And if actually it's 10 to 20%, I'm going to start thinking, okay, well, are you, are you just invoicing all these enterprise clients? In which case, cool, you'll have those invoices available to send, or actually are you doing something suspicious? So the, the amount of time required to put some thought into some specific compliance issues is, is low when you make sure you're restricting it to a small pool of companies. If you're trying to do that for 5 million tradesmen and women and, and small businesses, then it becomes a completely different story and it's not scalable. Makes sense. And for your target market, or at least for your launch, what kind of advice would you be giving to the next generation of founders that you're trying to help? What to look out for? Because with the absolute best of intentions, someone who's blindsided by this sort of um, informational request will often ap appear to lack credibility. And, and in my experience, the business case makes sense if the founder is blindsided by what people regard as kind of table stakes, credibility to be able to run a business effectively. In some cases, that alone is enough to scare away a bank from wanting to work with them. For the clients that you're going to be targeting and who might be listening to this podcast, either now or when you've, uh, when you've reached unicorn status and people want to see what Ed was like at the start of his journey and how, how it compares, what would you tell your first applicant if you could sit down, have a coffee with them and say, look, we're making your life easier, X, Y, Z, but you got to get your, you got to get your beep in order, uh, to make, to make sure this sells. Yeah. It's probably two or three things here that I think about. So the first is being honest and transparent. Second is a bit of preparation and, and what to expect. And the third is. Uh, let's say, can cut this port out in the exit, but uh, I think the third is probably some responsiveness. So, so coming back quickly on request. What I mean by those three things, honesty is super easy. Be transparent with the person on the other end as to what you're doing. The thin end of the wedge for, for us in terms of the clients we're targeting is going to be people in and around blockchain, crypto, Web3, digital asset. This is obviously a high risk group of customers for, for very good reasons. However, from what we've seen, two things are certainly true. One is that the majority of the businesses here aren't actually doing anything high risk. If you're a, a, like an NFT project, actually, or, or someone who's serving NFT projects rather, your use of crypto is relatively low and therefore as a proportion of your funds transfer is, is, is very low, so slightly lower risk. And the second is that if that business has a bank account today, they are almost certainly being flexible with the truth, let's say, or certainly concealing some of it as to telling their bank or financial institution what they are doing and consciousness being recorded. So I'm going to do with these, but I've heard some absolute horror stories about some of the other neobanks in terms of how the people doing the onboarding have coached the business through the compliance processes, which is pretty, pretty shocking, but I won't name names for fear of being sued. So the first is just be honest, like, like make sure you're being completely transparent with the person on the other end, what it is your business is doing. Because they won't 
coach you through in terms of saying this is exactly what you need to provide but they might be able to respond and say these are the kind of things we would expect from a financial institution or for a, for a business that is operating like yours so stuff as basic as like are you do you actually know who your end customer is or are you receiving money from anonymous people if it's the latter you should probably have a think about that and at least make sure that you're doing some level of screening to make sure the money coming in is is safe or in our case, you can turn to us and we'll do some of that work for you. If it's the former and you know all your clients, it, it'll be fine. The second point is around preparation. The onboarding process is actually pretty easy if you know what to come armed with. So make sure you know who your directors are, date births, addresses, have your cap table ready to upload so you can name everyone who's over 25%. You're going to get asked this from everyone, either during the initial form process or for some of the kind of slightly cheeky flows, they'll let you sign up and get through and then suddenly you'll be asked for all this information anyway before you can actually open an account. And so make sure you're prepared to have all the docs there ready. And the third is responsiveness. I think if you're doing something that is either potentially high risk or or you're likely to see lots of money coming in at once that if you stood back and took an objective view, like might be unusual or suspicious, if you're doing something legitimate, it'll be very easy to give the answer as to why that's come in. I guess this is called a source of funds or proof of wealth check. It's pretty, pretty easy to provide an invoice that proves a credit into your account. So just be prepared to send that over if you're having something that's out of your normal account activity. And by that, I mean, if you're spending kind of 10 pound a day on coffee and then suddenly you, you receive a 10,000 pound deposit from some other limited company, be prepared to, to share an invoice that says, oh, this money comes from here. Makes sense. And just to rewind a little bit, um, when I gave the intro, um, it was relatively generic. Would you like to uh, have the floor for a minute to say what the business is doing? Yeah, sure. It's kind of three core parts of our products. The first is current accounts, simple virtual IBANs that you can move money in, in, into and out of. Second is debit cards linked to those accounts for both directors and employees. So you can do a bit of expense management, spend management. And the third is concierge. So the ability to have a direct one-to-one -one relationship with someone at our financial institution that you can talk to if you have any questions either about your account with us, or if you have any other questions around the financial operations side of running a startup. So we're there to help you on that journey as well. In terms of who we're serving, Running a bank or starting a bank is not like this novel idea. People are pretty well served. There's lots of neobanks around there for you. We have plenty of opinions about how they're not serving the current startup landscape appropriately that, we'll, that I'm sure we'll get onto. But certainly the initial pool of people that are kind of being excluded from this financial system is companies that are close to or dealing with crypto. Um, again, for good reason. It's because it can be associated with some high-risk activity. But for us, we actually think it's simple enough to prove that it's not as high risk as you might think and so by having tight compliance processes making sure that we're being very careful about the kind of clients we onboard and how we manage those clients we can help them get access to the financial institution at a pretty affordable price point that they wouldn't be otherwise able to get your alternatives now if you're someone that's dealing with crypto like an nft project or any other web3 business is you go to a private bank and spend 500 pounds a month and something like 0.3% of your um, transaction volume is is consumed in fees, which I think is extortionate, um, especially for simple back transfers. So we're going to we're gonna provide a, a much easier way to get access to the financial system in a legitimate way. That, that means you don't have to 
be flexible with the truth to your bank, which means that actually we're we're helping to increase the the GCFC of all participants involved. I think there's definitely something to be said about um, the mechanism with which a bank chooses to monetize the different risk categories. And counterintuitively, charging higher prices dissuades people who don't have the flexibility of commercials or elasticity of pricing away from, uh, from those banks. If your bank charged you a percentage of anything to receive your salary to pay an invoice, if they charged you a percentage of that, you wouldn't be banking with them probably the next day. There, ergo, if you follow that logic to its natural conclusion, who would be willing to pay a percentage? It's probably going to be the sort of customer that you don't want. So the tool with which a bank often tries to protect themselves uh, from dealing with customers that they don't want to ends up being the specific reason they only get customers that they're uncomfortable with. How are you thinking about addressing that from, from a, a price standpoint? Uh, are you going to make it attractive enough for you a, fl- a fledgling financial service to get off the ground and generate a revenue that allows you to thrive and scale versus not being so expensive that um, you're having to bat away entities that you'd rather not do business with? Yeah, for sure. Uh, great question. I think the first thing is around not having any kind of risk-based pricing in there at all. So it's going to be purely based on the size of you as a client and, and therefore the kind of needs you have. If you are a brand new company that has two founders, two directors, and, and maybe a handful of shareholders because you've raised some angel investment or, or some VC funding early doors, it'll probably be free for you and we'll absorb that as a cost of doing business. It's obviously cost for us to service those accounts, but but broadly we'll take this on for free as, as kind of a bit of a marketing cost. As you grow, you're going to need to add on more and more services. I think if you look at most startups today, they tend to have someone that's doing their payroll. You have maybe Plio for employee cards and so on. We use Teleru to run some of our back payments and our payroll runs. And most of these services are costing you like 50 quid a month, 30, 50 quid a month plus per service, and you need loads of them. You can bail that to any kind of large commercial institution. Um, my favorite example of this is something like Royal Bank of Canada. If you're, if you're a big enough business that you're banking with Royal Bank of Canada and their commercial banking arm, they will look after everything for you. They will do your payroll. They will have debt and credit facilities available for you as you need them. They will run your employee cars program and they will do everything all under one roof. And, and you will have a dedicated relationship manager on the other side that is serving you all your needs, knows your business inside out, and is able to recommend the right product from within their suite to you. And so this is the kind of approach that we're looking for, which is that as you grow, we are going to have the right product available for you at the time. Some of those we will build ourselves. Some of them we have already built and stuff like the expense management is ready to go as soon as we get our regulatory authorization. Uh, and then the, the stuff down the line around credit and, and debt will build out as much as we can ourselves and where we're not able to build it quickly enough, we'll partner with the best in the business to start offering it to you. So you can have most, if not all of your entire financial needs under one brand, under one roof and through one dashboard. That sort of doesn't answer your question. Maybe it does, but effectively by having everything under one roof, the, the people, we're not pricing out anyone out because of risk, but the riskier businesses that are making money today that can therefore afford to pay a lot of the fees that you would see at a 
banks that would take them today will have an incentive to come over for a better product at a better price point. And for everyone else, they can kind of graduate up through our tiering as they add on more services that they need. You touched on an interesting um, cyclical theme in maybe any industry, but I, I can really speak with confidence on uh, fintech. And that's the the theory of um, the one-stop shop being unbundled into the kind of pick and mix, get the get the best of whatever you want. And now with the advent of the modern API, the rebundling, but rather than owning the entire stack from, from top to bottom, like Royal Bank of Canada, great example, by the way, I was expecting Scotland to come after of, <laughs> not, not Canada, um, where they've got everything themselves, or maybe part of it was an acquisition trail, but it's still a Royal Bank of Canada product. You guys are considering building some of it, but with the advent of APIs, you can more you can much more quickly consume the best of class and deliver that in a compelling way to your customers than has previously been available before. Um, I just wanted to get uh, some some macro thoughts on that that cycle where it was one stop shop unbundled, go to the supermarket to get your ingredients and build it yourself to now being able to get the the recipe pre-built from someone like yourself that has taken all of the ingredients and fashioned it into something that looks and smells like a one-stop shop, but actually they, the underlying ingredients of all of the participant bits of your stack are the best that you can actually get. What are, what are your thoughts on that kind of as, as a theme? Where do you think it's going to go in, say, five, 10 years? Yeah, great question. So I think for us, we believe that it's going to rebundle itself over the kind of near term. That's where we think it's going to be able to capture value. There's a couple of reasons for that. I think in the very short term at the moment, people are being very, very cost conscious. And so you see loads of people cutting down SaaS spend on trying to find seats they're not using in like Slack or HubSpot or whatever it may be to reduce their SaaS spend. When actually one of the quickest levers you can pull is actually amalgamating a lot of these services under one hood. So that's a good way to take out cost. And the second is actually you're, you're seeing kind of commoditization of financial services. I think probably one of the things you guys are betting on, right? But it's almost funny now to think of access to a current account as being somewhat commoditized. We'll see a lot of kind of hurdles to jump through in order to get access to that commodity. But you have many different players in the market that provide a very similar product at a pretty low price point relative to what you think it should cost to, to get access to the payment rail. And so the person who's going to win this is the person that builds the best product on top of that. And if you think of how, uh, who the end customer is, it's going to be the founder, the CFO of these businesses that is interacting with their finance stack. And the things they care about are convenience and cost, especially the CFO that caring about cost quite a lot. And so having a really clean product that does it all at a slightly lower price point than everyone else is combined. It's going to be, I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation of these things, either through acquisitions or through people coming up, hopefully like Ketzel to build a, a one-stop shop that does it all and, and integrates where we don't have a certain level of expertise, we'll integrate it or something is very hard, we'll integrate it. But for the most part, we'll build a very, very clean product that does it all and we'll grow with our customers as we do it. It's going to be hard. I think it's the products out there at the moment are pretty good. And I don't want to sound super cliched, but I think AI is going to have a huge impact on how people are interacting with these products. If you think of how we interact with finance today, it's 
pretty much just Excel, maybe a bit of kind of Tableau or Power BI to, to build some pretty charts that update every week or every month. But for the most part, it's these legacy tools that you're using to interact with. When actually, what does the workflow look like for a CFO? They turn around to their analyst and say, can you go and find out why we're less profitable this month? And then the analyst goes and pulls a load of reports out of Zero or QuickBooks or whatever it might be, crunches them through Excel and, and comes back and says, oh, well, actually our marketing spend has gone up 30% and actually our revenue's only grown by 10%. So we've, we've had a really high quarter for cost of acquisition. Those calculations are super easy to do, especially programmatically. And so I think, uh, and we're well, amongst a thousand other things that we've got to do over the next three months, one of the things we're testing out is a high level proof of concept of just this kind of virtual CFO or virtual analyst where you ask it a question and says, how much did we spend on marketing last month? That kind of thing. And it's pulling this information out of the API automatically just sending that answer back to you in real time, which is not something you get through Excel or, or through an analyst churning a load of dashboards. So I think, yeah, you'll see, you'll see the way people consume this information change quite drastically. And as a result, the person who wins is the person who builds the best user interface for the CFO, for the CEO, the person who builds the best product for the CFO and the CEO. With that statement in mind, how, how are you thinking about the, the future of your business? Um, You've obviously been thinking about this for some time. Um, potentially, uh, you're some visionary who can see five to 10 years into the future. No one needs to be a visionary right now. The, the Maybe not the smart money, but the hype money. Um, smart will be remain to be seen, but the hype money is on AI will be a transformative right. dynamic for every industry. How will you ensure that that doesn't become a, a problem for you and it will actually be something that is, is a, a tool you can leverage or you become the tool that is leveraged a, as part of that? I think the biggest competitive advantage we have here is just this dedicated kind of concierge-esque service. We will be unbeatably close to our customer for any other business bank account on the market because we will have maybe, I don't know, 50 to 75 clients per relationship manager, which if there's kind of 200 working hours in a month, that means that you've got someone who is only thinking about your business, exclusively thinking about your business for two hours in a month. And you may not need two hours of their time in that month because you may just be happily plugging away, but they might be coming to you with like, oh, you guys are, I've seen you guys are growing pretty drastically this month. Have you started to think about X or we can see you've expanded your payroll. You must have added some new team members. Like, how are you thinking about managing your expenses? That kind of stuff. And because we are that close to the customer, because we can get great feedback about our product and what they want from their financial stack, that's going to allow us to build those tools. And, and we can use whatever technology that might be to build, whether it's AI, whether it's just good product and good design, because we are very, very close to the customer and we understand exactly what they're doing. So I actually think by being very narrow in our focus. Not only does it allow us to put a load of attention into these companies, because they're going to generate way more revenue than a very small business, a microenterprise, it's going to generate a lot of revenue per customer for us. And so we're able to put this cost base, which is a kind of attention or time of people to understand those businesses better and understand what they need. And then when we understand what they need, we can go and build it. And we're agnostic as to the technology we need to build it. We can, we can use whatever we want to do so. 
if you look at the scale-up fintechs that have proliferated today, maybe with the exception of Stripe, who I regularly hear have some of the best customer service ever, which is quite some feat given their scale. But if you look at the, the UK neobanks, very few businesses are reluctant to place too much cash with them. The integrated finance banks with, with a, a few of them. But it's it's not that there's a problem with the product. It's that if there's a problem with the product, you can't talk to anyone. And um, in in a startup, time, time is absolutely everything. And if you're waiting three days to get a response uh, for an invoice that's going to stop the vital service being delivered to you so that you can go and deliver value to your customer or worse, a product not being shipped from from a harbor accruing storage costs, that can kill businesses. And I see a lot of founder CEOs, founder C-suite, not being willing to um, place their seed capital at one of these juggernaut fintechs who theoretically would be a better option for them from a pure product standpoint, just because of all of the horror stories I watched on the internet of, I tried to contact uh, Bank X and um, I've been put through to the seventh circle of customer service hell and um, yeah. and I can't get uh, said issue resolved. So now my business is going to hell. You're giving me the generic response of, this is how yeah. you get a latest statement. It's like, well, that's fine. I'm actually asking about this payment that's not going out, but thank you for trying. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And this is for us, the biggest gap we see of the neobanks. I think it's quite clear we're going to be competing with the revolutes of the world that have pretty good technical product. I think you, you have to give credit where it's due. We're not, we're not going into something that has not been transformed by modern software. It, it's been done since sort of 2014-esque. And so we know that the, the way we're going to be able to compete with the neobanks is actually by having this higher attention to detail of customer service. My bag is downstairs, but I have the bat phone ready, which is this JCB mobile phone, that battery that lasts forever. And that is the customer support phone. And it comes with me everywhere at the moment. Uh, I'm a full-scale founder. I don't have the luxury of a customer support team quite yet. If you are holding your money with Capsule and you are using our product and you have a problem and you call our support line, that is the phone number that rings and you get through to the CEO. And if I'm in the middle of recording a podcast like this, I'm going to be saying, hold on, someone's calling. I need to pick up the phone because no one else has that number. It's just the support phone number. And so you're not going to get that service anywhere else. And no one else is stupid enough to operate that way. I like it. Um, just wait till you've scaled and, and the, the spammers get a hold of it. Um, this is true. Although I think uh, one of my previous companies that was still back at first for David, the CEO, who's, who's someone I draw a lot of inspiration from. I think he was still, he was, he was the last person on the IVR tree rather than the first, but he was still, if no one picked up the customer support phone and it went through first line customer support, second line customer support, if you timed out on all of those, it did eventually ring David's mobile phone as the last person on the IVR tree. So, um, today, if you're watching this back in two years time, you can email me and see if I'm still, or call the number and see if I'm still the last person on the IVR tree. But I hope to be, I think it, it's going to be core to us understanding exactly what our clients need. And so it makes sense for me to be on it all the way through. I like it. I just want to take a little bit back in, into your history. Um, from a quick, uh, LinkedIn scroll, you've got one of the, um, as the cooler backstories, um, where have we worked at? Rolls-Royce in Derby, not too far from Stoke-on-Trent, that, where I grew up. Then brand ambassador 
what I'd really love to learn is uh, McKinsey. Um, what um, what was your experience like at McKinsey? What did you like? What did you not like? Um, a lot of people think uh, consultant is a cushy gig because you do all of the strategizing and none of the executing. But um, what, what was your take on that? What did you take away from that experience? Yes, chiefly, I learned to put in 70-hour weeks without moaning about it, which is coming in extremely useful as a founder. Um, no, I, I, I had a really good experience there. I got to work with some incredible people. Some of the people I've worked with are now backers and investors in my company. So I, I've made lifelong friends and, and learned a hell of a lot. I left on really good terms. Uh, stayed there for two years, did a mix of kind of public sector, defense, media technology, and a bit of finance as well. So I got an incredibly varied experience, learned a lot, learned how to make PowerPoint and Excel models, which is again, something that is frustratingly still valuable at a startup, uh, especially when it comes to fundraising anyway. And uh, yeah, uh, learned from some amazing people, definitely ingrained a lot of the feedback culture from McKinsey uh, and actually have recently been working on a, a community of ex-McKinsey founders and operators part of x26 which is something that i do on the side in my very minimal free time at the moment that's been incredibly valuable it's also a really good acquisition tool for for Ketzel because we meet early stage founders at the very start so that's good but no i, I learned a hell of a lot and, and went on to work for actually two two of the jobs i got after mckinsey first of it and sky were both working for people that i'd worked with at mckinsey so uh, it's a bit of nepotism in there i'm sure but um but these are people that i'd worked with quite extensively who then wanted to continue working with me after i left and so yeah, it was great. And, uh, and I just don't, as I say, have many lifelong friends from there. Yeah. Uh, the cliche network equals net worth. Probably most people in society, I guess. And just chopping back to Ketzel then, thinking about the next five years, have you got it all maybe explicitly or vaguely mapped out in your head and it's just, I got to grind to get there? Or are there some inflection points where you, you don't actually know what the future looks like after? after that stage and it'll be about being adaptive to what type of customer you're serving then or how the regulatory winds have blown during that time what's got you most excited about the next five years and potentially beyond and what's got you most concerned yeah great question i think there's a couple of so very short term is basically all compliance so there's some big hurdles that we are hopefully close to overcoming in terms of getting live with compliance. That's like taking up most of my thought time at the moment. Over the medium term, I think there's, it's going to be about the kind of clients we attract in the, in the medium term, what their needs are. So starting with this thin end of the wedge of, of web three companies, cause they're the least well served today out of all the businesses in the UK and across Europe. But if, if that segment doesn't grow as fast as we anticipate, or, or we start to pick up businesses in different segments, I think that could quite drastically change the kind of features we build, the kind of stuff we integrate. I think the you see the UK government outlining quite a big appetite for crypto in the future. The the new ethics age and treasury report showing what they're trying to legislate for and so on is actually really promising. And so if you do see an adoption of more crypto payments in the UK, then the kind of features we're going to need to build are basically making it equal to pay in crypto and fiat. I as a consumer don't care whether my money is going across backs or fast payments or, or PayPal. If I'm paying someone, I don't care how it gets me to be. I just care how quickly it gets there and how much it costs me to get there. And I personally think as crypto is just another payment rails. I'm 
have to admit, I'm not one of these huge like, evangelists that believe the government, that believe the critters at all to stop the government getting your money. I think the government is always going to have a certain level of control for good reason. Financial regulation is not a bad thing. It protects against people getting, um, losing tens of thousands of pounds, like you've seen with FTX and everything else that's happened. So I think regulation does help prevent that kind of stuff. Um, and so depending on how that environment evolves over the next two, three years, we'll have a significant amount of business. And then over the long term, I think there is something systemic about the way the UK is treating startups. If they treat them well and we become a hub of innovation, I think it's going to be excellent. It's going to bloom. But if there's if there's not enough investment and there's not enough regulation that makes it welcoming for people to come and start businesses here or immigrate here to work in businesses, then I think there's going to be a challenge of like entrepreneurial spirit within the UK over the long term. Hopefully, we won't be talking about because we'll, we'll be talking about how the startup ecosystem has thrived and there's... The UK has another hundred unicorns or however many in 10 years time. But yeah, I think it's, that's probably the thing that's going to have the biggest influence rather than anything that's within our control. And, um, just double clicking on that. Obviously, uh, the UK has, you know, your EIFs and your FCIF schemes, which has actually seen quite a boon in a lot of software companies. Uh, what else would you like to see? Um, what, what, what do you think would be attractive, uh, to create the next generation of uh, Elon Musk's, if that was possible. Yeah, I think a couple of pieces here. So firstly, it's good that that's the only thing I think that was retained from the Rosquateng budget was the SEIS upper limit being raised. So that's a positive thing. I'd love to see R&D come back. I know they're absolutely slashing the tax breaks on R&D, which has been a great force for genuine R&D. Like the bar is not low on that one. It is difficult to get an R&D tax rebate. And so you are doing some genuine research and we should be encouraging that. So I'd like to see them kind of reverse that change because it can't be costing them that much. Um, and the third is around uh, the culture of risk. I think the UK has a pretty conservative culture. Um, there's a lot around default paths. Like I ended up in consulting, but I've always been fairly entrepreneurial and I kind of wish someone had said to me, why don't you go and start a business now? Age 21, fresh out of university. It just never crossed my mind. Maybe there's something that maybe I needed to grow into that entrepreneurial spirit that I had. Maybe it needed to, I, I certainly don't regret the fact that I worked where I've worked because I learned enough that has helped me be slightly, I think I would have made a much worse go at it at 22 compared to what I know now. But I think it's this kind of default path that takes you into to consulting, banking, law. These are the things that are seen prestigious and actually the, bulk of the value is created on the startup side. So go and go and start something. I think the final thing is, is you need to build a UK system around it. So you can't just have people that are being very entrepreneurial because actually the, the best of the best probably go off to the States and go to the family or, or wherever it is to go and raise money from VCs over there, because that's where you get better valuations. I think that a conservative mindset does carry over to some investors as well. SAS is great because people effectively get a free shot. What is it like 27% capital at risk if you're a higher rate taxpayer. So really worth putting this money in because it's just free money you get back from the government. Mm. The upside is pretty good. But when it comes to investors, I think we need to see more of the US mindset of like, these are genuine risks. We are taking these are bets we are placing and we want to encourage people to take risks rather than dissuade them. Yeah. Putting the venture I, in adventure. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's not to say there's not a good ecosystem. I think it could just be we just need to make it great or improve it 
because I think I don't know. I've, I've certainly the VCs that we've worked with have been incredibly supportive, and they are kind of mix of European and US investors. Yeah. They've all been great, but yeah, you you could make a case that um, maybe it's not the responsibility of the government to do that. Maybe it's the responsibility of you. Maybe it's the responsibility of me. And if you boil down, why the hell have you started your business? Well, how many people never? bother starting because of the friction at the first hurdle that they never in intended, they never anticipated. By you bringing that, that challenge on, there will be an increased number of participants in your space that A, launch, and B, um, tautological, if they, if they can launch, they will be a higher number of uh, companies that succeed. And um, to your point, stuff like R&D, um, I really don't believe... Um, uh, I, I, I believe it will be an entrepreneur in, in this space very similar to you that maybe solves that problem. Um, there's a case, uh, not that I'm um, pro-government regulation or anything, but there's, there's definitely a case to say people will uh, massage numbers to take advantage of uh, any type of incentive, and R&D is certainly there. What would be super cool if a fintech, let's say a, a Ketzel, finds a way to... Um, give their customers the banking experience and correctly label their transactions with a full data set that could be pushed to the government. And here's your R and D approved statement. And, um, maybe it's a technical solution that can create that visibility for the government so that they don't have to pay, you know, a, a few million or, or whatever the cost is to, to validate those. And equally, sorry, accountants, um, the entrepreneur doesn't need to pay 25, 30% of it just to get it processed. Maybe if you could chop the cost away through technology, that, that might help spur on that innovation. And I'm a firm believer in, well, whole point integrated finance exists is to make it easier for guys like you to launch your product. You're doing exactly the same because you want to see a, a separate area of the ecosystem thrive. And um, maybe it's the second and third order consequences of what we do that will be the solution for that. And um, I, for one, I'm super excited to see what you guys go and build. Yeah, no, no I could, I could be agree that a lot of it falls on, I guess, us as the entrepreneurs and also us as the businesses to to build stuff. I think one of the things that I'm probably most excited about by far with our businesses is getting to know those customers on the other end, getting to know those startups, what they're trying to achieve, what their like really ambitious goals are, and hopefully being able to have a tiny bit of influence on that journey. And maybe it's as simple as like, oh, you're building this. I know there's a, an investor in the States that has, has this like absolute love for this topic and you should go talk to them because they'll give you a load of money or, or someone who says, oh, I've, I've got this new bit of technology that serves X segment. And we can say, oh, well, we've got five clients in that segment. Why don't I go and ask if they'd be happy to be introduced? And can we, these are things that don't cost us that much in time they certainly don't cost us anything in terms of product because it's yeah. all human and we're able to turn around and, and help in that very small way and you only get the ability to do that if you're just serving a tiny segment not if you're serving everyone um so yeah i, I think you're right it's it's there's a lot we can do to help and it's one of the things that excites me most about what we're building is that we can help startups in in this way awesome ed um Thank you so much for giving uh, us uh, all of your time today. I know how stressful it can be uh, spinning 50 plates, well, 
50 tables that all each have 50 fights on to try and get your startup up and off the ground. I have major respect for anyone that would do this to themselves. And I also think you're slightly deluded, but so am I. Um, uh, we're really super excited to try and uh, assist in any way that we can to get you live. And uh, we just look forward to seeing you su as successful as possible. Thank you for joining the podcast. No, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for all the support on the engagement. It's been, it's been genuinely transformational. So thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much.